You are indeed a great God, the creator of the universe, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the imparter of the Holy Spirit, and we praise you this morning in unison. Amen. We're going to open this morning to Romans 15, where we are still looking into the teachings of Paul on the church, on the nature of the church, on warnings of the church about disunification still. Um, We saw from previous chapters that there are, in the faith, there are things essential that all Christians must believe in order to claim the mantle of Christianity. And then there are things non-essential and that amount really to personal or cultural or ethnic differences. And those things are not to disturb the unity of the body. There's also the fact that there are Jews and Gentiles in the church. And at this point in time in the Roman era, it seems that this church is primarily Gentile. And God is speaking to the Jews there and to the Jews in general Uh, And when I say Jews in this sense, I'm talking about the Jews that have become Christians and believers. And there's some things in their Judaism that they have to put aside to properly receive their Gentile brethren as equals. And so Paul deals with some of those things. So I'm going to read from chapter 15, verses 8 through 13 this morning, where Paul writes... Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says rejoice O Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit, our Father, we pray you would add your presence and power to this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so from verse 8, he says, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's a packed statement. There's a lot of doctrine in there. Um, He brings this section um, as sort of a doctrinal summary of what's already been said in the past few passages and really in the past few chapters From verse 6, we read this, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to a congregation of believers. One mind, one mouth. Verse 7 continues the thought. He says, therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us 
to the glory of God. It's an obvious call to unity. He's still concerned with unity of the faith. Think of what, a, what strength the church could be if it was unified. So I think it's safe to say that the arguments of Paul, that Paul's making for church unity, which are receiving one another, being of one mind, speaking with one mouth. In other words, we, we, we're all individuals. We all have our individual mouths, but we say the same thing. That's what confession means, by the way. The Greek is homo legeo. Homo means the same, and, and legeo refers to the word of God. We say the same thing that God says. Um, so we're receiving one another, being of one mind, being of one mouth, and all these are wonderful applications for the church of our day. Yet the modern church wrestles with different problems than the ones that we see in ancient Rome. Have you noticed that as we've gone through this? Um, for instance, there's not much discussion among us as to the validity of Gentiles in the church. Nobody seems to be upset that some of us in, that are believers are Gentiles. In fact, I dare say most of us still are. It still is what Paul called in Ephesians the time of the Gentile. In fact, he said it in Romans chapter 11, right? Not yet fulfilled. There will come a time when Israel rise up, he said, and all Israel will be saved, but apparently it's not that time. So the things that separate us today, I think it's safe to say, are different than the... It, it, some of the things are different than they were in that day. Um, as I say, there's not much discussion about whether or not Jews and Gentiles should persist together in the church. Um, we readily accept that the gospel is for the Gentiles. We're not surprised or dismayed when Jews received Christ. We don't really argue about that today. We happily except the diversity of our peoples. There's no real argument against the legit legitimacy of those things. With regard to customs that separate us today as believers, eating meat offered to idols hasn't come up in the church lately. We haven't had a faction that said, I will not eat with those people because they're intent on sacrificing their hot dogs to their idol. You don't see that anymore because we're a different culture. There's not pagan temples all around that sold and prepared meat. So that's kind of a, a defunct argument that Christians could have against each other, but it still gives us a model. It still gives us an example to look at about the pettiness of bickering that happens on ethnic and uh, cultural and superstitious bases, Right? There's hardly a faction in the body today who would see meat offered to idols as a problem. There's hardly anyone that would offer meat to idols, first of all. It doesn't exist. As to feast days, however, there remain some issues between the brethren, and there are groups who make much noise about the cultural appropriation of days and festivals from pagan tradition. Friend, we might as well admit that Christmas and Easter and New Year's are straight out of Romanism, there's nothing of the, of, the, of the Bible in the formation of those holidays. We think it's a wonderful thing to celebrate Jesus' birthday, but we do it with the same means and the same traditions that they celebrated other gods with. You know, the gifts giving, the, the Yule log, the, uh, the uh, evergreen tree representing uh, immortality and such things. And so people argue about those things. Seems to me we've effectively Christianized Christmas and Easter. Um, 
And New Year's Day is not really a, a pagan holiday, uh, you know, starting the new year. It's, it's really just a celebration of the new year. People, it's a kind of a secular thing, right? I don't take New Year's as a, as a religious thing. Some people do, but for the most part, such things are not dangerously divisive elements in the church today. Neither do calls for dietary laws carry with them the same destructive elements that were evident in the first century. Um, there are um, believers among us who happily believe Christ and are vegetarians, or even vegans, I suppose. You don't have to be according to Christ, but you're welcome to be. I don't think anyone's going to say, let's throw them out of the church because they won't eat meat with us. And vice versa, there's not a, I don't see a group of uh, vegetarians saying we've got to get rid of those meat eaters. You know, so some of the things that became a problem for them then is not, are not such a problem now. Um, however, there are holdouts. <laughs> the Seventh-day Adventists are very strong against eating certain things, and they conform to Mosaic law still. They think the eating of pork and shellfish, things like that, are, are abhorrent. Shouldn't do that. And, um, and as their name hints at, worshiping on the Lord's Day has gone back to Saturday. There is no Lord's Day. There is the Jewish Sabbath. And um, that's a very important point to that group. And so they have effectively excluded themselves from fellowship with the greater part of Christian society, it seems to me, throughout the centuries. Um, I don't, I've always wondered how you effectively do that. Even Orthodox Jews are, remember Joe Lieberman in Congress? He was a, a senator from um, Connecticut. You hear from him now and then. Um, he's an Orthodox Jew. He always stopped work on Friday and took evening and took off till Saturday evening and worshiped with his synagogue. And uh, he was a good man, good uh, moral man, a, a liberal, you know, not on my side of the aisle, but uh, a seemingly good man. I always wondered how you could sort of go against the, the trend of the five days in the weekend. You know, they say Christians gave us Sunday off and the labor unions gave us Saturday off. You know, in Jesus' day, there was no weekend. You know that, right? <laughs> Jesus wasn't saying, well, we can't wait for the weekend. <laughs> Just take some time off from all this preaching. <laughs> no, there was the Sabbath day, and it was, you know, for a preacher, that was, a, that was an ardent work day. Um, so I always wondered how they work that into the schedule of, of the modern Christianized society that we're in. But um, So disunity over non-essentials still exists, and certainly our modern world has invented new things to fight over, like musical accompaniment. It was interesting, that came up yesterday at Dennis's memorial, that some of the youngsters, Dennis was not approving of the music, and they saw him as a stern old man, but he wasn't, he just... You know, he was kind of set in his ways, and the songs we sang this morning would have been totally approved by Dennis. But that's really just, that's really just your own nostalgic um, connection to certain songs and beats, you know, that kind of thing. Um, some of the modern songs are kind of undoctrinal ditties. You repeat the same phrases over and over, and they may or may not be biblically sound words, but... So we, we argue a lot over music in the churches. The gifts of the Spirit is a big one still, the proper use of them, right? Is there really a place for a Christian standing up and just prophesying at will, what they some call popcorn prophecy? You just stand up and start speaking, and we all have to say, ooh, God spoke through him. You know, there's still a lot of questions about those things, the speaking in tongues. 
um, which I really think has been uh, perverted today because the speaking in tongues in, in the scriptures is the glossa, which was always a, a known language. And people say, no, no, it's, a, it's an angelic language. Look, look through the Bible. Whenever angels came, they spoke in a known language. I don't see that they spoke in something and they needed a translator, right? They spoke to Abraham in a known language. They, came, they spoke known languages. Uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, in other words, men and angels speak in the same tongues. He didn't say, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, like two different types. You know, the Greek was a very good choice for the New Testament because it's a very precise language. And so it seems to me that part of that, um, the argument over the authenticity of the gifts um, could be solved with really a little exegesis. Um, The prominence of preaching. Preaching has fallen on hard times in some places, and they've exalted other things. In fact, we refer to music as worship, and the music director is the worship leader, as though music is worship and everything else we've added to it, which, of course, is the opposite. Um, There's wine drinking, of course, which was done all throughout Christian history and today has um, fallen into scorn from some groups. There's head coverings for women, which are mentioned, and and some take it as a a literal thing, and they... um, argue over that. Women in leadership is a big one today. You see that? So there's still plenty of things to, to iron out. Acceptable Sabbath day recreations has always been a big one. You know, what can you do on Sunday? You go to church, can you do anything else? We had friends, we had discussions about that when we came, because tr- reformed churches got to go through this stuff, and you got to work it out. And we had some friends that say, no, on, on Sunday, uh, we, had a fr- we would get together at different people's houses. Remember, we didn't have a building. And we'd get together at different people's houses, and we had a new Reformed couple in the church that were very good Christians. We love them to this day. Uh, they moved away down south. But uh, uh, they were very adamant about um, taking the whole day with certain worship practices, and they didn't like the fact that people went home and changed their clothes and then came to the fellowship at the house. They thought that was too much. And... Um, and we discussed about uh, whether or not you could buy anything on the Sabbath, because what you're doing when you do that is you're requiring that someone else work on the Sabbath to serve you. And um, I said, so we, you know, because we're ironing these things out legitimately. And I said, so we can't go to a store on the Sabbath. And then he said, sometimes I pop into a store. Now I'm thinking, now we've got to put into our bylaws the definition of pop in. And we have to say, Pop in is legitimate, and God is happy with that. But those who linger long, you know, at the cosmetic case, so the fruit aisle, uh, you know, so it really gets like that when you start doing this. I've never seen these things properly ironed out. I'm going to tell you. There's a, uh, you know, in the Puritan era, of course, the Puritans were, were very strong on these points. And he was sort of taking a Puritan view, minus the pop in comment. But um, King James came out, who was uh, a very good scholar of the Bible, by the way. Um, I just read a a very uh, good biography of him. Very educated, knew the languages of the Bible. And, um, of course, he fought with the Puritans all the time. He didn't take their view. But he came out with a Sabbath statement called the Book of Sports. You've probably heard me talk about it over the years, the Book of Sports. In other words... 
James felt that Sabbath worship was required. But after the Sabbath, after the worship service, people could take recreation. Because he said they work six days a week. And then they have to go to worship all day on Sunday and never have time for just recreation and fun and rest with their families. And, uh, but, he, but he held to, if you didn't go to worship in the morning, then you couldn't recreate in the afternoon. All right, so it seemed to me, and I'm going to tell you, it seems to me that whenever reformers try to nail all these things down, and, and we all like to be Puritans and stand with the Puritans, even though they had a lot of crazy excesses, we have to admit it, and King James was trying to be good to his people and trying to be a good Christian, I think we've always defaulted to the book of sports, even if it's just by accident. And so I have to say, I, I take James's place over the Puritans in this particular argument. But those are things that we churches separate over. Um, we've had people walk out saying we weren't strong enough on our, of our Sabbath observance. Friends, in the old days, we rented a place for 50 bucks a week and we had two, three hours. We didn't have the afternoon. So we didn't, you know, we could gather in a field or gather at someone's house, but it was hard to pull that all together. Um, so a lot of these things, I, I have to say, are, are non-essentials. I'm not saying worship on Sundays are non-essential. The Lord's Day is an essential. It's part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But the particulars about how we do that properly, uh, um, I think sometimes we go overboard. Don't you think by some of the examples that I gave? Um, so we followed the apostles' reasoning with regard to the sanctity of the unity of the people of God. If we looked at the unity, the way Paul's looking at it, that's the sanctified thing. That's the goal of the body, not getting your way in the particulars of the non-essentials. But look at the ultimate unity of the body of Christ. We're to receive all who come into the household of God by faith in the one Jesus Christ. You know, whenever you talk about unity, you're going to get someone who brings in the idea of, the, of ecumenism. You're familiar with ecumenism, the ecumenical movement. In other words, we're all Christians. We all, all the denominations are Christians, the Catholics, the Protestants. You know, some even include the cults. We're all Christians. We ought to uh, drop the names and just sort of get into one big melting pot and live happily ever after, witnessing to the world that we're one in Christ. That's real trouble. And that's not approved by Paul. Paul says, stay away from those kinds of things. Separate yourself from those. Um, what did he say to the Galatians? Beware of those who come and preach another Jesus. If I or even an angel from heaven preach to you another Jesus that we have not preached, he is accursed. And he, and he doubles down on the fact. There is a certain body of essential beliefs that all Christians must believe in order to become Christians, and we can't unify with groups that don't recognize that. What about groups that don't recognize the divinity of Jesus Christ? That's another Jesus, isn't it? What about the Gnostics who saw Jesus as only a spirit and not a body? That's not our faith. Jesus came back and said, I'm flesh and bone like you. Thomas, put your hand here. Put your hand here. Feel me. Right? As John said in 1 John, we saw him with our eyes. We, we touched him with our hands. Jesus came back. Um, I heard someone just, I thought, just passed by yesterday and is speaking about Jesus was spiritual and not physical. 
Um, I don't know if they meant it that way, but Jesus is a physical being. He's the perfect man, and he'll be that way for eternity. He's not a ghost, right? Remember they thought he was a ghost, and he said, I'm not a spirit. I'm flesh and bone, as you are. Um, So you can't just drop down all your differences and take the least common denominator and say we're all Christians because, frankly, we're not. And we lose our tradition. That's a satanic trick, doing that. All right? So unity doesn't produce truth, friends. Truth produces unity. If you follow that axiom, um, we'll be right in our Christian lives and our doctrine. Um, So the unity we have between ourselves comes from our common unity with the same Lord and Savior. Whether we're the strong, um, as defined by chapter 14, right? Or whether we're the weak in the faith, whether we're a Jew or Gentile, whether we're a slave or free. We're not arguing a lot about slaves in the church today. Not a lot of talk about the slaves. Um, in that day, most people were of slave status. It was Today, everybody, we, we like to say middle class You know, the Industrial Revolution created for the first time a middle class, which most people are in, and people are relatively prosperous. wasn't always that way. And in Rome, some anywhere from 30 to 60% of the people were slaves. They weren't citizens of the nation. They didn't have the same rights. Remember Paul? They couldn't behead him because he was a Roman citizen, but they didn't know that because he was Jewish. They assumed he was a slave, you see? Um... Of course, he proved it and showed it, and then all the Roman leaders were afraid. They didn't want to get caught breaking that law. Um, And so Paul offers the same loving instruction that the Lord Jesus gave before he said to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think the calls for ecumenism or the ecumenical movement is the belief that if we argue about doctrine, which is a perfectly legitimate Christian thing to do, to nail it down in the word, somehow that's unloving. Any disagreement is unloving. That's not what we're looking for as unity. Our unity ought to be able to withstand some of the um, back-and-forth argumentation and debate that we have about about the um, sanctity of our beliefs and the the truth of our doctrine. There was a song we used to sing, They Will Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Does anyone remember that song? So this text of the apostle focuses on certain of the basic doctrines of our faith. Number one, the incarnation. The incarnation, the human nature of the Lord. I say that Jesus Christ, in verse 8, has become a a servant. He was a man. He lived, he lived in the earth as a man. All right? So it talks about his incarnation. It talks about his mission. He not only was a man, but he was a servant. It talks about, um, or rather, uh, it talks about the nature of the church. Hearkening back to the previous verses, he taught on the present insignificance of past differences. And that the unifying force for the people of God is not ethnicity or tradition, but faith, mercy, and love. You know, they were a very diverse group back then. Go back to Acts chapter 2 when they, the, the Holy Spirit rushed into the upper room and they all came down and they preached. Go into and see all the different ethnicities that are listed there. 
Scythians, Lith- uh, Lithians, Parthians, right? I mean, it goes right through all this. I don't know, there's like at least a dozen different people's names, and some are from Africa, so they're obviously dark peoples. Some are from Europe, some are from Asia. So they were a very diverse group in that sense, but they weren't diverse in their doctrine. They, they gathered in one place, in one accord. And that's probably the only time in history that ever happened. All the believers in the earth gathered in one place and in one accord. So the unifying force for the people of God is not our ethnicity, as the Jews would have thought at that time. It's not tradition. It's only faith and mercy and love. And these are joined together in the glorification of the same God through the same Son of God. Now in verse 8, the apostle speaks of the circumcision. I want you to know he's not talking about the act. He's talking about the Jews. That's a synonym for the Jews, the circumcision. Just like sometimes he'll refer to the Jews as Jacob. Or he'll refer to the Jews as Israel. And Israel and Jacob are the same person. Or he'll uh, refer to them as the seed or the chosen. There's different ways. When he says the circumcision in this context, you're not to take it literally. You're to take it recognizing that Paul is using it as a designation for for the whole nation of Israel. And so he speaks of the circumcision. And in this context, he means the house of Israel. Circumcision is the covenant sign of the Jews. And so he refers to them by that sign. Paul speaks of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, the so-called what? The root of Jesse from verse 12. Anyone know who Jesse is? Jesse is David's father. And so they refer to Jesus as the root of Jesse, just as David was the root of Jesse. And so Jesse gets some notoriety in the New Testament. Uh, And he came first to the Jewish people as prophesied. He did not come with pomp and glory, although there was one incident we know in the field with the shepherds, right? And the angels came down and they sang. But friends, that was a secret thing. Only a few people saw that. I'm amazed Luke even found it out. You know what I mean? Of course, he had the Holy Spirit inspiring the whole thing, but only a few shepherds saw that. And when they came into the town, people were going to say, you saw what? The angels came down, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What, what on earth does that mean? Um, only a few people saw that. But other than, other than that, there was sort of a messianic secret. If you remember, the wise men came, and Herod, who was very astute in biblical teaching, didn't know that he had come. Um, so Jesus came as prophesied. He came as a man of sorrows, a lowly born citizen, not comely that he should be noticed for his carnal beauty. People didn't choose Christ because he was so handsome. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't, but Isaiah sort of leans into that. He says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, There's no beauty that we should desire him. You didn't choose Christ because he was a good-looking dude. He was, and what he's saying is, he came as a man like any other man. He may have been very handsome. He may have been very plain. That wasn't what attracted people to him. In other words, he was born into this life 
as any other man was born, as any other person born of a godly woman of Israel. His divinity, as I've said, was a carefully guarded secret. Even the apostles didn't quite figure that out, the divine part. Um, until later, of course, in the ministry. But um, he was not high-born. He was low-born, as it were. Um, he, didn't, he wasn't born into, into Herod's family, the way I think the Herods. I think they had a, a messianic complex, and they believed that that uh, the, the Messiah would be born into the Herod clan. If you go to Romans, uh, not Romans, the book of Acts chapter uh, 12, remember when Herod killed James with the sword, put Peter in the prison? It's a very famous book that begins with that, with that uh, story called I Am Peter. But um, Herod, it says later on, he came out and he was in such celestial splendor that he preached so wonderfully to the people they said that is the voice of a god and not a man and then luke writes but he was eaten by worms and died so you see i i mean it it sort of gives you the impression that the herods expected that they would be seen as as god which would have been in the style of the roman world at that time um where the caesars were thought to be gods um So he came for all his people, he said of himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. All those who come to him were singled out for adoption as sons by Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Friends, we're always surprised when someone comes. God isn't surprised. God is not a guy, a guy. He's not a being, he's not a person that can be surprised, Right? So we may remember from Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he already knew, right? And what, I think what people get confused about at this point is, you know, Calvinists have been variously accused over the years to lack evangelistic zeal, even though all the great uh, early uh, missionaries were Calvinists. They said, well, why would, a, why would a Calvinist preach the gospel if he believes God's just going to save all the ones that are going to be saved? Because the same God who ordained who's going to be saved ordained the method by which they would be saved and the, and the person by whom would preach the gospel to them. So the elect are chosen by God, the method is chosen by God, which is preaching the gospel, and the preachers are also chosen by God. So it's all under the umbrella, umbrella of, uh, of God's choosing. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good works of men. You should all be mad that I said it that way. According to the good pleasure of his will. I caught everybody. Um, If there are any surprises to the Jew or to the Gentile as to who are the disciples of Christ, it is our surprise, not his. Right? He accomplished all things to his glory before the foundation of the world, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are born, um, born which are in heaven and which are on the earth. In other words, the saints who preceded us into God's um, presence and the saints who will follow up afterwards are all joined together in Christ. 
The Lord's never surprised by the identity of new believers. What's new to us is known to him. He visited us in time, but he lives in eternity. And so he revealed himself in this way to John when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, very famously, a scientist named and philosopher, I should say, named Carl Sagan, remember Carl Sagan, who very famously said, the cosmos is all there ever was and all there ever will be, or something to that effect. Um, well, he's wrong. The cosmos didn't pre-exist God. God pre-existed the cosmos. And if you ever want to challenge someone with that, say, well, you know, the evolutionist thinks he's really got science on his side and he's really smarter than the poor, quaint Christian who only knows things by faith. But I would say the difference between you and me is our worldview difference. You believe that nothing created everything and we believe that something created everything. That's the basis of our worldview. Something created things. Nothing does nothing. It is nothing. So if there are any surprises to the Jew or Gentile as to who are the people of God, it's our surprise, not his. God is never surprised by the identity of new believers. And all the brethren are joined by faith in him, or rather, the brethren who are enjoined by faith in him, have been given the same spirit, and the spirit is the guarantee of who they are. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of who you are. And so we read again from Ephesians, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you heard the word you believed. You were saved because that's the deal, right? And the Holy Spirit came on you in that moment. In fact, he enlightened you to see the truth of Christ, right? Regeneration precedes faith. God regenerates you, and and part of that regeneration is the gift of faith, which allows you to believe and give you access to God. We went through that in the previous chapters. So regeneration precedes faith, and the Holy Spirit comes in at the moment of your belief, and you're sealed, and he never leaves. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, look at it this way. We're on layaway. God's promised to buy us, but he made a down payment called the Holy Spirit. And he put it in us. And when it's time, he's going to pay the bill. Right? Because redemption is an economic term. Right? You're buying something. You're buying it back. Just like when you redeem your bottles, the owner of the bottles gives you some money and he takes back what's his. So remember the, the ministry of Peter in uh, Caesarea at the centurion Cornelius's house. You remember this? He came and he preached the gospel to a mixed crowd, really for the first time, right? And so while Peter was still speaking these words, I'm quoting from Acts 10, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know what that was like. I don't know if they could see that happen, if they could just experience it or feel it, or the Holy Spirit enveloped them in the experience and they just inwardly knew, but it's an awesome thing. 
that God just fell on those um, who heard the word. So here's Peter in the spirit preaching the word, and the spirit is contagious, and the germ that spreads it is the, is the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. You see, the circumcision means the Jews. Gentiles weren't circumcised. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So the sign that first delineated that the Spirit was upon you happened then too. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And we would say today, yeah, I I forbid that. We've got to put him through Sunday school first. He's got to learn the catechism. I mean, look what it says. And he commanded them to be baptized right then and there. It's almost like we don't believe in evangelism anymore. I don't know if he's really saved. He's just emotionally, you know, high right now. But, uh, you know, got, he's got to walk for six months before we can uh, baptize him. I don't know if we've got that right. I think we should believe in evangelism. But anyways, then they did. Peter said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay for a few days. And then they came in and they had a little water bottle and they sprinkled it on their heads. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so we all know about ownership, right? Oh, let me go back. Uh, um, yeah, the members of the churches are the purchased possession of their heavenly owner. Now, we don't always like that because it's sort of a slavery thing. We're owned by someone else. We're not really as independent as we like to think. As I've said, redemption is an economic term. means to buy back, and you have been bought. You and your Jewish brothers who have the same faith and the same gospel and the same Lord have been purchased, and the currency was the blood of Christ. And so Paul said this to to the Corinthians. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You see, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people that have the Holy Spirit. And you're still at liberty to go in sin. And Paul is saying, don't do that, because you're drawing the Spirit of God, who is God, into your fleshly sin. And here he's talking about sexual sin. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You don't own yourself. God owns us. He bought us. He paid the price. And be, rejoice in that because the devil can't take you back. If you bought yourself with your own blood, you're up for grabs. Your blood doesn't have the power of Christ's blood. So we all know about ownership. We understand it because we have things. We, we like our things, don't we? What's that? We, we like our things. We don't like our things to overtake us. We, we, we want to own them. We don't want them to own us. That's why when we're in a lot of debt and you feel like your car owns you. Remember when you were young and you were car poor? Your car owns you. Then you got older and you got a big mortgage you couldn't afford and you were house poor. I don't know if you were, but I was. And my house sort of owned me, <laughs> you know? Um, and we don't like that. But we have things that we, that we own. And... Um, 
And we're possessive about our things. We take care of them. We call them our things, right? Remember, they were talking about Dennis last night, and he said he let the kids play in the cellar. He could play wherever they wanted. He didn't care. They could mess up the house. They could break doors. But there was this little section where he had the cassette tapes that said, do not touch. These are my things. (laughs) The holy things. That was a good story. Um, All of my things were like that. My kids weren't allowed to do anything at all. (laughs) No, I was a wrestling dad. I had three boys. I had to beat them up all the time. So we have all these things. I, wouldn't you be surprised, though, if the things you have on your shelves started arguing with each other? When I, when I wrote that in the notes, I thought, that's like Toy Story, right? The toys rebelled against the owner, and he was a real brat, that kid, right? Didn't he do nasty things to the toys and break them or something like that? And Jack knows. Jack's, <laughs> Jack's with me on this, on this spiritual point. Um, we got into Jack's domain, the, the, the book of toys. But... Um, they, so the toys began to judge one another. You know, that's, that's what we are to God. We're the, it's closer because we're family and we're the crowning achievement of his creation. But we are his things. And he doesn't think we should be fighting over foolish things. We're owned by him. So um, as he said to the, to the Roman church, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. In other words, he's already judged by God. Why are you bothering to judge him? That's done, right? It's kind of like when Judas, and uh, he instigated it, but the, the apostles got in on it when, when Mary broke the spikenard and was, and was um, blessing Jesus and anointing him with the expensive oil. They said, you could have sold that and given it to the poor for 300 denarii worth of uh, food to the poor. And Jesus said, no, no, no. She's honoring me. In other words, she belongs to me. If she wants to give me an expensive anointing, that's between she and I. You know, Jesus, I have to say, was a capitalist. Um, who are you to judge another servant, Romans 14, 3 and 4, to his own master he stands or falls? And so Paul summarizes for us the concepts of unity that we learned in the previous passage. We're all of the same household. We're all of the same family. We're here by the love and the mercy and the sacrifice of the same Lord and Master. And so the strength of the church is our carnal and ethnic diversity, but it's revealed to the world in our intellectual and doctrinal unity. We have outward diversity, but we have inward unity. We all speak the same thing with the same mouth. So we're diverse in appearance, but we're unified in belief, right? MacArthur comments on this passage. He wrote, to illustrate that it has always been God's plan to bring the Gentiles and Jews alike into his kingdom, Paul cites passages from the Old Testament. They obviously were given to soften the prejudice of Christian Jews against Christian Gentiles by demonstrating from their own scriptures that the inclusion of the Gentiles was neither a divine nor human afterthought. Isn't that a great statement? In other words, God obviously knows, MacArthur knows, there's no plan B, friends. God didn't fail with the Jews and say, well, that's it. Um, um, uh, It's the time of the Gentiles. 
that's only the sequential unfolding of plan A. It was always in the plan. There's one plan. But it comes in different phases, right? And so Paul writes in uh, verses 9 through 12, as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, and there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. And so the apostle punctuates his argument with salvo after salvo of Old Testament thunderbolts that the Jews should have known. It was in their word, you see. And so it is the time of the Gentiles. I think when those things happen, and it happens to us, we know certain things are in the Bible, but we don't focus on those because they don't fit in with our narrative of understanding theology or whatever. And every now and then someone points them out, and they're like, yeah, that's right, I've never really worked that out. The Jews knew they were alike to the Gentiles, but they forgot, apparently. We may recall from chapter 11 of Romans where Paul made it very clear that for a time the Jewish people would refuse their Savior and in the interim the Gentiles would receive him. And so he wrote in chapter 11, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. In other words, it shouldn't have been a mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. They were supposed to be the light. Right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so he quotes the psalmist. He quotes the prophet. He quotes from Moses and Deuteronomy. He quotes Psalm 69 and 18. He quotes from 2 Samuel, the first two chapters of Isaiah. This mystery that he speaks of ought to have been no mystery at all to the people who had the book in their hands and every Saturday went and read it aloud. Paul asks rhetorically in chapter 1 of Romans, is God the God of the Jews only? And the Jews should have gone like this. Is God the God of the Jews only? Some of them would have went, yeah. Gentiles have their gods, we have ours. He's saying, no, there's really only one God. The gods of the Gentiles are no gods at all. He's the God that created the heavens and the earth. You have it in your, in your gospel of Moses in Genesis chapter 1. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, Paul writes. Far from exalting the Jews in this passage, the apostle rebukes them, paraphrasing from Isaiah 52, saying, for the, and he's repeating it in Romans 2.24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying to the Jews, you were such bad examples of walking in righteousness that I'm blaming you for the fallenness of the Gentiles. Friends, what he's, he's saying that of old, but he's saying it to the church. He charged Israel with it in those days, but he's charging the church with it now. And he leads into the conclusion by asking rhetorically again. And so he says this to the Christian Jews. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Do you think you're a guide to the blind in the knowledge of you have? You should be a guide to the blind. 
and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself, he says. You who preach that man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Why would they rob temples? Because you could sell idols. They were worth stuff. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? In other words, Jews, if you have such reverence for the law, you ought to have it in your own life. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he is found, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves, he said to his Jewish brethren. Friends, there's a fearful diatribe in this. He charges the Jews with the ungodliness of the Gentiles because of their hypocrisy. They had no light to follow because the Jews fell away. And by extension, he charges the church with the ungodliness of the world today due to our hypocrisy and lack of zeal for our faith. Paul says the same thing in the book of Acts in the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia. And just a note about Antioch and Pisidia, there were several different Antiochs of old because a guy named Atiochus, a Syrian in the previous century, went around conquering places and he named the cities after him. That's what you did. Alexander did that. There were several Alex- Alexandrias. Constantine named Constantinople after himself, right? It used to be Byzantium. And so uh, Antiochus did that. This Antioch was in Pisidia. The more famous one was in Syria in your New Testament. But just a side note. So we read, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. That's a miracle that we all hope for. You preach the word and they, and they beg that you just keep preaching. And when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So they're reaping the Jews with the gospel, Right? who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. It's not just a Sabbath day thing. You continue in it. And then it says, on the next Sabbath, a week later, Luke goes to, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy rather than rejoicing. And... And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. They were mad at Paul, so they turned on Christ and his gospel. Even though people were being saved. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. And so the Jews that believe and the Gentiles believe became the church. He then quotes from Isaiah again. Remember, Isaiah, 750 years before Christ. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles, he says to his Jewish brethren, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and there's a little tidbit for the Calvinist, right? 
those who were appointed to eternal life, to no surprise to God. And there it is. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah in the book of Acts again. The Jews should have known they were evangelists to the Gentiles. And so Paul's message to the church from today's text is that the believing Jews do not make the same assumptions as their unbelieving forebears. It's like you're in the church now. You've got to give up some of the old stuff. The law is good, but you're not under it. The law is good, but it's fulfilled in Christ. The whole ceremonial law. Quit sacrificing animals. Christ is sacrificed once for all. Give up some of these things. And that the Gentiles hold to the faith that they're given and hold to the ministry of light that's been entrusted to us. And this whole outward witness relies on inward unity, a unity of spirit, a unity of doctrine, a unity of fellowship, of love, of joy, of peace between the brethren. And that's the church and what it should look like. Not concerned with disputes over what? Doubtful things. Friends, let's have disputes, but let's have it over essential things. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And what did he say? Everyone join together and we'll find the truth? No, he says, from such withdraw. And so we read from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to those who would believe in him and become the church, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's a directive of, of the church. Be a light. In other words, friends, being right apart from love is being wrong. It's not, this is not an intellectual exercise only. It is an intellectual understanding, but it has, to, it has to grow into something. Knowledge is useless, friends, without Philadelphia, the brotherly love, the doctrinal unity. Paul wrote it to the Corinthians very famously, and though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Rightness is not righteousness. And so Paul offers the unified church this benediction. May the God of hope fill you all with joy, or fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, there's a body of knowledge that true believers subscribe to. There are things essential to the Christian faith and genuine fellowship with Christian peoples, and there's an endless train of non-essential things that are satanically devised to trip us up 
and to point out the light that the gospel has lit. Beware of the pride of belief. Beware of the love of personal preference. Esteem others greater than yourself and remember the rule, in essentials seek unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in everything charity. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, add your power to the preaching of this, your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name.